Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest... I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased to share with you the latest episode uh, where our guest today is Bob Buchanan, the founder and leader of Buchanan Partners. Bob's journey is a fascinating blend of real estate Navy experiences, and public service. And I'm sure you'll find his insights as enlightening as I did. Here are some key takeaways from the conversation. One, the Navy influence on his life and career. And he tells some fascinating stories there. Number two is his real estate journey, which started right out of the Navy through his father's company and then forming his own company and then a successor company after that. The power of partnerships. He had a partnership with Sun Oil Company in his first company and then had partners, active operating partners with him in his second firm that he still holds today, among others. Number four, the company culture and crisis management issues. So Bob's company operates like a family-owned business and he values equality and respect among the partners. And it's somewhat analogous, as I suggest, to the JBG companies as they were before they went public. The other aspect is his public-private partnership activity and regional planning activities. And that's when I met Bob. And we'd go into that. He talks about how he developed the relationship from the Dulles Airport Authority and then 
into regional planning that led to Reality Check we talk about and into 2030 Group, which he formed as well for the region. Then we talk a little bit about the future generation, our, the millennials in the future, and what opportunities they have and challenges they have ahead of them. And then finally, his personal reflections about his family and how his wife stuck with him through all the challenges and things that they went through. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Bob Buchanan. So Bob Buchanan, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Good to have a chance to reflect back on a great career and a great location to have that career. And I appreciate the memories you've generated by your questions to want to know where, when, and how I was able to do the little that I did. Great. So could you describe your role as the founder and leader of Buchanan Partners and your focus day to day, Bob? Well, I'm a third generation, I'm a third member of our, back up a minute, excuse me. I'm a third generation developer. My grandfather was more in real estate sales. My father was a home builder and in 1963 he was president of the National Association of Home Builders. And I knew I couldn't match his abilities. Was this here in Virginia or Maryland? He was, he was the, right here in this district, yes. My grandfather, father, and then I was born here in 1943. So okay. 80 years later, I'm looking back at some of the things they started, which have been very successful. And the headquarters of the National Association of Home Builders is here in the district. But my father loved the concept of providing a house that people could live in for generations. So I grew up following him as a little boy, following him, sitting in the car as he would drive his subdivision and people would come out and talk to him because the, the turnover rate was nowhere near. Where was he building? He was building in the suburbs of Washington, basically. Mostly Northern Virginia or Maryland, Maryland or both? Maryland, okay. From Greenbelt to Alexandria to- Really? You know, everywhere. Everywhere. So I grew up looking at this region as, as one and the Potomac River didn't come into my, lex my lexicon, so to speak, until much later as the politics changed as regions and jurisdictions evolved. Mm -hmm. So Buchanan Company that I started with was an evolution of these other companies. And that was a, a great opportunity for me to, after I served in the Navy, for me to learn because unlike most people, I, when I went to college, I wasn't studying to be a businessman. I wasn't studying to be a home builder. You went to Yale University, right? I went to Yale, and my father had said, my sophomore year, he said, you're very fortunate to have been to good schools like Yale. You've earned it, you've done well. But upon graduation, I want you to go into public service so you can be with people who are smarter, not smarter than you. Interesting. That will be a good way for you to learn how to manage, but also learn how to listen to people. So it turned out I ended up in a program at Yale that you needed to go to like reserve officer candidate, this name of the program, but you needed to go to OCS, officer candidate school, in the summers. And then if you graduated from OCS and you graduated from college, you could get a commission. Mm -hmm. So 
part of that program was, though, if you didn't graduate from either one, you were an enlisted man. And that was enough of an incentive that you wanted to make sure you didn't take lightly the, the military training. And I found I enjoyed the military training. And I found my father's advice about being with people who were just as smart as me but didn't have that opportunity. I was surrounded with people like that. And I ended up serving on an aircraft carrier. And one day, we were looking at a film clip on Vietnam. This is 1965. And none of us knew what the hell Vietnam was or where it was or what it could be. And this old warrant, chief warrant officer, looked at a bunch of us young officers and said, gentlemen, if you want to do anything in this Navy career, you better get your ass to Vietnam. The next day, as luck would have it, on the PA system, there was an announcement of a language aptitude test. And so I took the aptitude test, and depending on how you scored, you would be offered language school. And the test was, I think, three hours. The first hour was you had to make, memorize a make-believe language. In the next two hours, you had to utilize it, be tested in it. And I tested high enough that I was trained in Chinese Mandarin. So I went to Chinese language school for a really? And then I had no idea what I was going to do with it until they took the top students in the class, and they set us up. We were coming to, going to the language school on the East Coast, and we were driving up to NSA, where we were going to be interviewed for our next tour. Mm -hmm. On the way up, we're just chattering about what we're going to do, what we would do if the Navy saw fit to use our skills nonstop for 45 minutes. We get to NSA. John, this is the truth. We went into three inner sanctums. Finally, this three-star walks in with a clipboard with our bios on it, and there are four of us sitting there. I, as of now, we're getting a little apprehensive. Three-star general came in? Really? Admiral. Or Admiral. And yeah. he basically said, this is what you're going to do, this is what you're going to do, you and you. Are there any questions? No. It was so far beyond anything <laughs> any of us had ever imagined. We said, no. We walked out, we got back in the car, not a word was said all the way back to where we'd left. I got in my car, went home. My wife said, where are we going? I said, well, we're going to go to southern Japan. Great! Why would they send you to southern Japan if you speak Chinese? I said, because I'm going to be gone from southern Japan on missions in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. For three years, I did spend rounds. Wow. Some of them were in submarines, some of them were in airplanes. And Did you get a security clearance then, at that time? I had the highest security clearance. It, it was not just top secret, it was code word, code word, code word. Wow. So we were doing stuff that was, you know, when you didn't read about it in books, and I never really talked about it, and I guess now... So were you affiliated with the CIA at the time, or, or uh, NSA, or DIA, or one of the, one of the agencies? I all of them, but I, I reported first to the head of the Navy. Naval intelligence? Well, it was someone in special in the Navy that oversaw tactical operations in the Pacific. And so you learned about the inner workings of the Navy at that point then, right? Wow. And so, I'll fill you in more on that in a minute, but back to how I 
got from there to here. The good news was I was with the best of the best. I mean, we were doing stuff that was unbelievable. And part of it was we were well-trained. Part of it was our technology was so good that we were in places that no one... So this is LBJ's presidency then. You were during the, the Vietnam War yeah. era. It was 67 to 70. Okay. And so it's a little after, you know, him as well. But anyway, and then Nixon, yeah. So, because Nixon had said, if anybody ever attacks my... I'll get into that in a minute. So, so Nixon was also president. Of but course. Anyway... The training was such that I was officer in charge of a small group of men who were specialists in intelligence and signals and communications. And we were sent to be on submarines and, the, and the, only the best of the submarine commanders were chosen for these missions because you, you had to be pretty capable because there was no help in sight. And if you were discovered, well, it's point, the most secret part of the Navy, is the submarine. Yeah, and, and at one point, if we were discovered and forced to surface, initially they told us I had to kill my men because we were a fear of being tortured and telling secrets. secrets. Yeah. So I'll just give one example of how effective and good and capable we were. And I'm not saying we as individuals, just the Navy and the program. Mm-hmm. So, about, I think it was the 45th reunion at Yale, one of my classmates had a, a party to introduce his wife. He had divorced and he remarried, and his wife had been a member of the Red Guard. And she had had her parents killed in front of her, and her father was a commandant of a highly secretive Chinese submarine base that no one really knew about. And she described, she was telling them about the view from her bedroom overlooking the harbor. And she was going into, you know, a lot of things. And a young girl proud of her parents and their stature in life until the Red Guard wiped them out. And I got up and I left the room. And I'm sitting on was this during the Cultural Revolution, or about that time, of, of China, Communist China? Yeah, for her. Right. But the story is much later, because right. she escaped to eventually, and, and my friend married her, and whatever. But anyway, she's, she's telling about how unique her, her, her child wow. was. Wow. And I got up and left, and my wife came out and said, Bob, what's wrong? This is unbelievable. You should be listening to everything. I said... Well, I was afraid I might say something. She didn't describe the view from her room very well. And I didn't think I could keep biting the inside of my mouth. <laughs> so that's... Because you knew things that you couldn't say or... Because I was... I was there. Yeah. She didn't describe what she saw very well. And again, you had to be with captains who were pretty damn gutsy themselves to take you there. Right. And we had some close calls. There's no question about it. Did you go under the under the North Pole and no. I mean up in the Arctic? Okay. Uh, just, I was stationed in Japan, so we go to the Yellow Sea. I mean, we were. Okay, so you weren't in, you know, the, the Russians mean, weren't, you know. I didn't, I couldn't. The, the worst thing that happened to me, and this is back to Nixon, so when 
the China, the North Koreans uh, took the Pueblo. Oh, yeah. Which was a surface ship. Right. I remember that. Nixon said, no one's going to do that to my Navy. Launch it. So we're on trying to figure out. 68, 69. Yeah. Yeah. So we're suddenly going in places that we didn't, hadn't been trained to go. And because I didn't speak Korean, you know, and I didn't know anything about the Korean coast. I knew Chinese, I knew Chinese coast, but so we were spread thin. And then it got even worse when the, I, I was on subs mostly, but occasionally I'd fly, we'd fly missions along the coast just to test how quickly they could pick up our presence and what kind of signal, what kind of signals would come on and then who would communicate with who. So we would learn if we did need to attack, if we did need to protect how strong their coastal defenses were to an airstrike. Not that we were planning to attack, but we didn't know what the Chinese might do with our presence in Vietnam. And the whole purpose of the submarine being there was the Navy brass did not want the then fourth largest submarine force in the world to slide down, just have one of their subs slide down the coast and put a fish into a destroyer off in the Gulf of Tonkin. So that was never going to happen. To prevent that from happening, you had to know how good they were, how they did things, and know how to stop them. Same way I flew. And the climb was fun because you weren't gone for two months. You were back home in a day or two, and we would fly down from, uh, we'd take off in, in, in Japan and fly along the coast and land in Taiwan, and the next day we'd come back. Well, on one mission, I got a, when we landed in Taiwan, someone comes out and says, who's the officer in charge to the plane as we landed? And he gave me a message and said, you're supposed to head back right now let your chief run your crew because the CO says you have a surprise inspection tomorrow and he can't pass it without you. So I'm on a commercial plane flying back through the night. Meanwhile, my men got up early the next morning. We fly back and a Chinese MiG, I mean a North Korean MiG came out of nowhere and blew them up. And they were in an EC-121. There was a 50th anniversary. Wow. It was 1969. And so I get out. Obviously, I'm, I'm devastated because that's my team. And I'm wondering who I can get because I know that we're going to be called upon because we're the only ones who had those skills. But I didn't have that deep of a bench to call from. So I'm at the memorial service, and my everyone is crying for the loss of life of the young men and my chief. And I'm stone-faced, looking straight ahead, and my wife, who knows how emotional I am, said, what? <laughs> what are you doing? And I said, I'm trying to figure out who I can task to go, because we're going to be sent out somewhere in the next couple of days, and I don't have a clue who is capable. Three days later, I was on a helicopter with five that I had selected, who had never been on a mission before, and we're on a helicopter waiting for a submarine to surface so we could be lowered onto the sub. And as luck would have it, the 
pilot of a helicopter is getting a little nervous because the sub hadn't surfaced where we thought it'd be when he thought it was supposed to. And anyway, finally it popped up and he said, good, because I'm running a little on, on fuel. Well, my men, was usually as an officer, you're the last one to go, mm -hmm. let your men go first. None of the men had ever done this before. I hadn't done it. But they were scared to death. They had, we had 70 pounds of equipment on our backs, you know, that kind of stuff. And you're going down. And we're going down the cable. Cable. And landing into the, into the, into the, the submarine. Stuff, which is going to submerge as soon as the last guy. Wow. So, long story short, we all, I, I went first and saw how easy it was. They followed. We get on the sub, and the submarine captain walks up to me and says, Man, am I glad to see you because I have no clue what we're supposed to do, but I'm told. You've been on five of these missions, you're the best, and you'll tell me what to do. And I said, sir, I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And he said, well, we're in trouble. He said, because a third of my men, are, I had to leave on shore because right. I was told to leave immediately to pick you up. Wow. So we're going to be under manned. Well, the proof of that was at 2 a.m. the next morning, many hours later, were being depth charged by destroyers. <laughs> Here, we couldn't keep the bubble. The, the guy he had on that ship was inexperienced, couldn't keep the bubble, and we were we got picked up by someone. Needless to say, we got through it, but it was like... Wow. So you could probably feel the explosions of the of the of the oh, depth charges yeah. right outside oh, your oh you the hole. I'm running up to the CEO. I said, "What the shit?" Don't <laughs> worry, I got the con. I shouldn't have put the kid on. It's my fault. I got it going down. So it was good. Wow. And that's the that's the kind of experience <laughs> my father thought I'd have, but it was that that exposure to things that were so far removed from. Most of my friends, like my graduating class, only 17% did not go to med school, law school, business right. school. And that 17 did. How many went into the military? Very few, probably. Not that many. Particularly but, well, then, because yeah. the risks were so high to go to Vietnam. Right. But there were, there were some. And, and, and had been in OCS or, or right. lots of people. Right. But, and, and that, and you bring up a good point because I, I couldn't go to my my tenth re I went to, I couldn't go to my fifth because I was over there, but I went to my tenth. I graduated in sixty-four, so it was seventy-four. And nobody was talking about Vietnam. Nobody. And I and That I, was the year Nixon was resigned. Oh, they were into that right. big time. But yeah. no one talked about the impact on our not our class necessarily, but our generation on because I had experienced in my own neighborhood vilification of anybody who was a Vietnam vet. And it happened to me personally, where some guy just said, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I can't stand it. I mean, we should have been there. You should have been there. What's wrong with you? And he's a neighbor. You know? mm -hmm. And no one wanted to hear your side of it. And anyway, so I'm talking to my class leaders and saying, you got to start talking about this because it's a part of our society and it's a part of our class and we're going to be facing with it, with the trials and tribulations. And anyway, it took them a, a number of reunions, but they finally started talking about it. But it was tough in the 70s being a Vietnam vet, I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. And 
so I learned just never to talk about it. So no one ever knew about my, it just knew I'd lived in Japan and I was in the Navy. But, you know, that's it. And I didn't. So that experience toughened you quite a bit. I mean, you saw things that very few people see at your age. So, well, and it, it, there was one time, John, I said to myself, if we get out of this one, because, you know, it was a crazy mess. If we get out of this one, I'm not going to let things bother me. You know, I'm no. going to take him in stride. And, and I think that that was probably one of the stronger takeaways, just relax, take a deep breath, think things through, you know, you're, you're not, there's, there's got to be a way, just take your time and figure it out. So there's no financial stress you could ever go through that would be greater than what you went through there, obviously. <laughs> uh, there, was, there was financial stress, but in a way, I remember coming back, well, back to my mother for a minute, so... It's the end of my tour. I'm burned out from all these missions. My God, I yes. Have two young daughters. I've loved being in Japan. When I was on a mission, my wife Sharon said, You're mine. We're going to these pottery villages. We're going to enjoy. In Japan. In Japan. We're right. Live the best we can yeah. and enjoy this unique experience. So, my time's coming up. I'm being approached by CIA, FBI, maybe, you know, whatever, to stay in. And I was torn because I, I was being offered some pretty high opportunities. And again, I did not want to work for my father, the home builder, because I didn't have any affinity with that. And that was his love and his passion. I didn't have a passion, you know. So phone rings, I answered it's my mom. And she said, well, I think we're proud of all that you did. We're glad you're certainly glad you're alive. What are you planning to do now that your tour is coming to an end? John, I hesitated maybe a second. And she said, good, your father needs you. Come on home, we need you. Can't wait to see you. <laughs> Came home, I'm going to these meetings, all these guys, these hotshot guys, you know, who have been to in banks and been to financial, you know, right, sure. training and all. They're speaking in a jargon that I did not understand, did not know. I was afraid to ask questions. I was just mm -hmm. quietly listening. That's why, fast forward to young people coming into the business today don't have the ability to sit at the table and listen to what is being said because they haven't been at the work. You know, mm -hmm. they missed that. So I really got a crash course in development just because my father was turning things over to me and I was having to get permits and, you know. Sure. And that led me to. Land use issues and everything, right? Exactly. And so that led me eventually to, I got elected on the Rockville City Council. And because, again, we had a, we had a permit that we were, it was a no-brainer permit that they were going to review and approve and through the planning commission, Rockford Planning Commission, and it was an extension of a shopping center. And we were supposed to be on at seven, and the attorneys, the engineers, and I was just going to make a presentation, which I always did. 
And we got delayed, delayed, delayed. And finally, this guy refused to hear us because it was past 11. Mm -hmm. So the next morning, I come to work, and Dad says, great, did you get the permit? I said, no, they didn't even hear our, our case. He said, what are you talking about? I said, this guy kept delaying it. And I, what, if I wasn't in a position I could argue publicly. So he said, that's not right. He picks up the phone and he calls his friend, Mayor Tuckman, Mayor of Rockville. They had known each other for a long time. And my father is Buck. Tuck, this is Buck. What the shit's going on with that planning commission? My son was there with all the team for four hours, and they didn't even give him the courtesy of hearing the case. And Tuck says, you know, Buck, we've got this guy on the council that's been assigned to the planning commission that's a horse's ass. He's trying to be a power guy, and he says this once too often. We need to have someone replace him. You have anybody in mind that I can work with? My father says, I do. I'll have him call you tomorrow. You. You. I'm like, great, Dad. Who are you going to call? Who's going to You got to call with the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the cleaning commission. There you go. So I came in with my business sense, and I, was, and I would say publicly to the staff, we need more options. You can't just tell us this is the only position that we should be considering. Where is it? You know, and I would let the, but I also wouldn't let the developers get up there and bullshit because a couple of times I say, wait a minute, I think I know the market better. That's not going to work. What are you going to do when this happens? Mm -hmm. And people would say, why are you doing that? You're in the business. You should be supporting one. No, I'm in the business to help this community develop as best as it can. We're not going to have something that's going to fail, and I knew it was going to fail, and I approved it. So I started to earn the trust of the civic leaders who said, well, maybe this guy is so bad. So that's the unique experience you have that very few developers have, is being on the other side of the table in the approval process, which and is that, interesting. And that's what led, that's a good summary, and that's what led eventually to my being one of the founders of the Ball State Partnership. Yeah. Because we had a scenario where the Boston had approved this land use revision, master plan revision, that allowed no flexibility. And they had pretty good FAR requirements, but it was all commercial. So this is the county of Arlington's Arlington, approval. And they had the RV corridor. Right. Sure. Which they really wanted to. Yeah. They wanted it to be revitalize the county because of this of the mix of uses. Well, this and, was also and, metro. And metro, right, yeah. exactly. So I got involved in working with some of the county commissioners, and John Milliken, for instance, was one, and, and that's where he and I developed, because he, he was open-minded, and he was trying to figure out, well, why isn't this working? And, and maybe we ought to form a task force to really bringing in some of the key people who are developing here, as well as the key people of the community, as well as some of the elected officials and staff. So why Boston and not Roslyn or Clarendon because or? We, we bought a piece in Boston because my team at Sun didn't want to be caught. They loved the idea that it was right off the uh, 66. 66. Right. First stop. 
right there. Right. And from the tower, you could see 66. So if you were coming from downtown, you could see the infrastructure. Right. If you were coming from out of town to town, you could get in there quick. So that they did not want to be caught in the middle of the of, of Boston where there was no visual sense of place. Interesting. And so I showed them two parcels that we were thinking about that I had options on. And we ended up buying both of them. But the moral of the story was that's where they wanted to put the office and the others where they wanted to put the residential. So interesting. So then you so when then, when did you start your own company basically? When did well, when you kind of when did your dad step down and hand you the reins basically? My mother, my mother was really good. She, she saw the young bull and the old bull not agreeing on a lot of things. And she said, she turned to my dad once and said, you know, Buck, he's, if you want him to take over the company, which is your only exit, you better start letting him have more of the reins if he's going to make mistakes, he's going to make mistakes. But he's never going to run the company and pay you what you think the company's worth unless you give him a chance. That's when, and that was in the mid-70s. So I hadn't been there that long. And I, but I was, I was really interested in the commercial side of things mm -hmm. because we had a plan, we, excuse me, we had a project in Fairfax that was going nowhere. And we had one in Loudoun that was going nowhere. And I, but we had land in, in Herndon, excuse me. And I said, I want to build a flex, can be office, can be industrial, whatever the market's going to let us. But it was beyond Herndon Parkway, and I've been told infrastructure, 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 be right there on a new road, let's go for it. And my father thought that was ridiculous. But some old people said, so, yeah. 1970-ish, 75, mid-70s, mid how did you get there from Rockville? So let's try, take, take me on the roads to get there from, from... So, because we had, the business had, the company had business in, right. in Virginia, I, and that, that I was assigned to me. Mm -hmm. We had some other properties in the district in Maryland, but they were pretty much right. not in play. They were income producing and they weren't doing as well as they could. But anyway, but the new stuff that Dad had thought he would be doing was just long, dormant. No one was no one would knew what to do with it. And it was given to me. And then the piece had heard it, I said Reston's about to catch on fire, and I used the example of whatever agency moved out there and changed the game in Reston, whereas the land had been appreciated when people saw what they paid and you know that kind of stuff. So I was I was kind of to due diligence because it was cutting edge stuff. So I had everybody's comps, and I remember the first big project I did for Radnor. I went up and made my presentation. And I predicted that this office park in Herndon would sell at $3.50 a foot. 
the guy in Philadelphia said, we have a major office park in the suburbs of Philadelphia that's not getting $3.50 a foot. You're telling me your thing that in some place I've never heard of is going to get more? <laughs> the first deal I signed was for three seventy-five dollars a foot. I sent it to the head of Radner, and he said, okay. Who were the users at that time? People who were coming out of Tyson's who wanted to be closer to the airport, right? People coming in that wanted to start a business. And we had foreign uh, people that wanted to have an office. Because so of Dulles. Because of Dulles. Right. So, and it was right there on the toll road, right there, easy visibility, easy access. This was before the telecom boom out oh, there, too. Wait. Yeah. It was Dulles. Right. And I, I was on the, then I got on the Dulles board and I saw a chance for the Route 28 district right. and what right. that could do, yeah. better land access. Yep. So I was involved in the Route 28 and that's what got me into Loudoun because I said, wait a minute, Route 28 expanded. All of a sudden. It's in Loudoun County. It's Loudoun County's viable. So when we bought this property, we called it created Lakeside, but Loudoun, Loudoun Tech, but Lakeside was a there's only three stories, and I regret that they weren't six stories, because when we sold those buildings, it was the highest price per foot commercial office building. Set a record in the It's probably still a record because prices have declined so much. But I have to say, so that got me into the land development, office park, you know, whether it was along the toll road or along 7 or through 28. And, you know, Lerner was out there, and, Everybody was seeing the opportunity because of the movement, but nobody was going over the river. No one was going into Maryland. People were coming out from D.C. and telling and, and and Tyson's wasn't a great place to live and work because the traffic wasn't conducive to, you know. But if you were a big corp, you had to be there because they didn't have anything yet in Reston or or Herman to accommodate you. Well, I just interviewed David David Orr, and he was with Lee Samus at the time. Right. So Lee Samus was pretty active doing office parks there, as well as Centennial, of course, yep. Pete Scamardo. And yep. so they were the two, you know, rest in office developers at that time. So I don't know if you were oh, yeah. really with those guys. Like, I really like Pete. We would have parties. We would have get-togethers. And we would toast each other for having the luck to be willing to do what we were doing because everybody else was just shaking their head. I had the, I was lucky that I had Sun Oil. So I had the financing if I believed in it. But as I indicated in the answer to you, I couldn't ever lose. I could always get what I wanted as long as I never failed. So I had to have plan B, C, D, E, if, Plan A wasn't coming the way I thought. How, what would I do to improvise? And when Sun taught me that, basically, son, my mentor and Sun said, you may be good, you may be infallible, you may be lucky, but if you don't have a fallback, someday you're gonna be so convinced that you're right and you're not, and you're gonna, you're gonna lose. Let's peel back to how you developed that relationship with Sun. So, 
I was introduced to this guy who was looking for a local partner in the DC area because DC, as you said, DC was taken off. The DC area was taken off. And Radnor was the real estate subsidiary of Sun Oil. And the decision was made that the Sun Company was generating so much cash flow that they wanted to invest it in long-term real estate holdings. How could they do that? What where should they be diversified geographically? How's best to know about that other location? You better have a local partner. Have a local partner who isn't always about themselves, who knows what a partnership can be and will be a good partner. So I was introduced to this guy who had run, been manager of all the gasoline stations in this region. So he knew the region. His job was to find somebody who also knew the region and could do because he didn't know anything about real estate. He knew the gas business, gas station business, but nothing about the planning, the architecture, you know, the marketing, that kind of stuff. So we developed a relationship and he taught me about corporate thinking and I taught him about location. Location and political implications. He had never interacted with the politics. It's interesting that oil companies would want to get, I mean, I think about Reston Town Center because of, you know, Gulf Oil getting there. So they were doing it. So what? Exxon was doing it. I mean, there there were some, Shell was doing it. I mean, they they had, I mean, rather, I don't know, it was a It ended up being a billion dollars in working assets. One that, when Sun made the decision to get out of the real estate business because it was getting a little dicey, you know, in the in the nineties and, and stuff, right. they just cut. I was lucky because we had so many big projects that were so good that they said, "Wait a minute! If you cut, you're, you're going to take too much money off the table because you're some of these other things." You've cut and not gotten your money back. Here's a chance to get your money back. Do you want to do that or not? And my mentor was good to convince the oil company, okay, but you better be winding it down. So that's when I ended up buying those projects. Got it. Radner. Mm -hmm. And the Radner guy I was dealing with, who replaced my mentor, he looked at me and he said, this isn't official, but they really want out. You've done great. Give me a price that you can live with, and I will deliver. And I went. I mean, I was thinking about all the what ifs, and, and, I, and he said, "Don't be afraid to give me a price that you don't think is a good price, but I might surprise you." I went, "All right." So I gave him a price, and he looked at me and he said. If you figured out this and that, I went, yeah, but I didn't want to push you too hard. He said, push me hard. I want you to succeed, but I also want to be out. That was because he appreciated my willingness to, because I wasn't looking to take advantage of them, and I wasn't looking to do anything but make sure those projects were successful. So that's why when Steve, Hubert, and Brian came along, I was really, really willing and able because I just said, I'll buy this. And they came in and said, great, 
well, this development. What year was this now, Bob? Um, it was like early 90s? Okay, so how did you finance that acquisition? They took back paper? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so they did a. They, 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 made they accommodated it, they accommodated it for you. And, and again, you know, you, you look at. I wasn't, I've never been greedy. And I think maybe sometimes that's worked against me where I could have, should have. But <laughs> yeah. I'd rather have people think that I didn't take advantage of them and trust me and give me the benefit of the doubt than being always at the edge mm -hmm. and pushing. Pushing. So, that, and I think that's stood me instead in when I've been interacting with partners, equity partners. And we've had. At one point, I went up to New York. Someone wanted me to meet this guy in New York who had access to all kinds of equity. And he asked, who were some of your partners? And well, we had Tishman Spire, which was a major New York development. Of course. We had some Dutch. We had some Chinese, Taiwanese. And we had some wealthy individuals. And he went, no, 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 who are, your, who are you really dealing with? I, I told you. I said, God, I can't believe it. Some people can only deal with international and can't do the local. You've, and I, we had a pension plan. You've got pension. You've got academia. So full array. You've got the full array. I said, how do you juggle that? And I said, I don't know. Just what I think my job is. Well, it's, you know, the, 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 the interacting with that many different institutional investors, you have to have very good systems. You have to have really good communication skills. I mean, that's not easy. No, and, and eventually, you know, Tishman came one time and said, you know, we're a little embarrassed because they had an Australian investor mm -hmm. that they were basically doing, and we were outperforming them on our project with them. And, and they said, you know, we don't want the Australian investor to, we don't want him to go away because we think that's... To Macquarie? I can't remember. You don't know? Okay, Macquarie was a major Australian investor. I, I, I just, I yeah. never meant that. But anyway, right. so I said, okay, let me buy you out. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I started weaning down when it wasn't really working. But with the Dutch... It was just like there was total trust. Yeah, Brian Benninghoff, your partner, told me about your Dutch relationship that was really strong. It was, it I was remember. Really strong for you know, yep. 30 years or whatever. And still folks strong. And, and, and then the Chinese, Taiwanese, I mean. How did you find these folks? I mean, did they come to you or? Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. They well, saw they, your they, success they in Northern Virginia. Right. And yeah. The Chinese have been investing in this area through one member of the family lived in Baltimore area but was aware of you know, this region and, and so they, they liked that the sense that family was there. And that was a long-term commitment by a, a, a family that said, we, know, we don't know when the Chinese are going to come back and take us over, but we need to have a strong presence in the United States 
where we have one of our members living in that eventuality. <laughs> so being, wow. being from this area didn't hurt, you know, because everybody related to it. Mm -hmm. So what was your investment strategy at that time? I mean, you, you had your, your Loudoun projects, you did your Ballston developments, you had two major projects there. And then you looked at some things here in Montgomery County as well. So talk about that a little bit. Again, what's really ironic is here you're talking to a guy who probably did more suburban office parks than anybody. And I'm not bragging, I'm just, I started early and I was I had the Bill Bryant giving, calling me, <laughs> telling me the next best deal. Right. And I had people who trusted me that if I thought enough of it to put it under contract, they were going to give me a commitment because they wanted me to develop it versus someone they didn't trust. Well, the other person that I think of is Henry Long, who was right. very active out there, too. I financed was, a couple of his buildings. He was Fairfax. He was at one end of 28 and I was at the other. Right. And, and we would get together and, right. and it was great working with his people. But so I, so I, the irony is, John, that when I was a little boy, my dad would take me to his projects and I grew up thinking, wow, I'm, I'm so proud of him. And look what he's done. Now, <laughs> I can't take anybody to a suburban office park that's either failed, thank God I didn't own it when it failed, or has had to go through a re- Completely re- Yeah, re yeah. And so I can't point to anything <laughs> where I really made my career and say, I did that because it's- Well, Boston, Boston. Some of the office buildings at Boston for sure. And, and Lakeside's not bad, but the other thing I'd say that we enjoyed doing was we brought art into the, the development business because we wanted to create a sense of place. And so we always had good lobby art or good entrance sculpture to create, okay, this is different. So where'd that come from? My wife basically had uh, a great business dealing with architects where she would bring in artists to deal with the interior design. And she was, she had a string of great artists that she commissioned works for. And I got to meet them and got to go to some of those studios. And I'd have to say that some of my greatest pride was getting some of my teams to select the art, artists that we would commission for a sculpture for an entrance to an office park. And people would say, well, you're the guy who knows art. And I said, no, you're the guy who can appreciate this, what this project needs and what kind of, what will differentiate it? What will make it special? What will make it special for you? You'd be a part of this. So then I had people coming to the meetings and volunteering. And that created that sense of family. We're all in this together. That's interesting. We're not going to... It's not going to be Bob choosing for everybody. It's I imagine the architecture community appreciated it too. Yeah, yeah, because it was it was hands on. There's no. In fact, I think I was maddest at myself when I who I used to really get into the details and really understand why they were this design, and I let some guy talk me into a system 
that he didn't understand as well as I thought he did. And I deferred to him, and I ended up having to change that system because it, well, it was an HVAC system that wasn't working right. And I just said, I need people around me who have more expertise. Competent. And, and competence. Interesting. So, well, you, you, you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. Mm -hmm. So Bob, tell me a little bit about your your company structure. I met your partner, Brian Benninghoff, in the early 90s. He talked about kind of your investment strategy at the time, and now you've expanded your company considerably and have nine partners now in your firm, which is interesting. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the JBG model a little bit, so curious if that is... In fact, the person we hired that long ago came from JPG and she's going to be great. Anyway, I think three things. One, the three of us, Steve Hubert, Brian, and myself, came together as an opportunity to, for me to use my ability to have equity partners and know the region. The three of us brought different specialties. Brian reads a financial statement like most of us read a novel. I mean, he really understands it. He sees things. He's a finance guy. He, he, he really understands the finance. And he's a relationship builder. Steve has background in his father was White Hubert, playing construction. Steve grew up in the construction world, has an eye for detail, and, and, and understands the operations far better than many could hope for. And if we were going to be developing, Steve was a great source of strength as we were looking at opportunities and architects and engineers and construction contractors. And I was more of the marketing guy, maybe the big picture guy, maybe the community guy. So as that evolved and we started to do the success and have the successes we had, and we got into a mix of uses because we had a willingness and we had the skills to see it through. Brian became the CEO. Steve got more into alternative investments, and I was able to pursue my dream of public-private partnerships, community relationships, and eventually started the 2030 Group which was an effort to bring in business collaboration, business leaders to collaborate to help define a sense of regionalism so our community, our DMV, could grow and reach its potential versus jurisdictions competing against one another. So that has led me to be here as to mentor, be here as a, wait a minute, what about this, what about that? But the day-to-day -day operation is really from the team that we build up over the years. And again, at me turning 80 and Brian and Steve aren't getting any younger, it was an effort to reach out to more members of the, of the group and bring them in as partners. They were already doing executive level work for projects and or comptroller, et cetera. And, and that's why we've expanded. And it's, and in this world, actually, with the pandemic, it's turned out to be a very good thing. We've been lean and mean, but the team is very competent and 
very happy to be entitled to do the things they do. So and, and don't have to worry about this old fool who hasn't been involved in day-to-day <laughs> walking around and still having a, a, a role in their decision making. Right. That's over. Yeah. What you know, different developers have a style on it and what they look for and what their lens is for deals and that kind of thing. What would you say is a Buchanan project if there is such a thing? I mean, as far as looking at, at opportunities. I think, and Brian can articulate this better than I, but I think looking at willing to take a risk based on the, the ability to, to with the ability to have staying power, knowing that you're going to be trusted and you're going to be given the benefit of the doubt as you try to market and you go through the process, the entitlement process. But more importantly, having the reputation of the successes you've had, where there's never been a project that was a fail, a failure. There's never been anybody who didn't comment about our ability to to make things happen that maybe others couldn't. And so I think, you know, you don't want to live on your reputation, but I think it gives you a sense of we're gonna, we may not be as successful because of the market conditions, but we're not gonna fail. And we've been able to. Um, Give a couple examples of situations where, you know, your unique ability to kind of withstand certain uh, market conditions, other developers may not have been able to, to handle it. Some of it was just the way we bought it. We were able to buy it over a long period of time, accelerate it if the market was good, but we had time without being penalized. So I don't want to get into too specifics, but I think that I think being in the business as long as you are, it teaches you. It teaches you to make sure certain things are covered that others, like someone used to tell me, it's not what's in a contract, it's what's not in the contract. <laughs> yeah. So I think I've learned to ask, <laughs> what about this? That's How a very this good point. And, and again, sometimes <laughs> it's just your, and this sounds terrible, but it's true, it's sometimes it's just your intuition. I can remember maybe a prospective partner on something that we would venture on. And he reminded me of someone that I did not like or respect at all. And, and I just said to myself, why am I trying so hard to make this work? Mm-hmm. Better get out before it starts if you have these intuitions about mm-hmm. this person. Mm-hmm. And so you never know. But I, I do think it's, it's, it's important to have Maybe, maybe your safety net is too strong, and others think it's you're spending too much time well, on that safety net. I'll go back to some stressful times in our industry in Washington. So I, I go back. My first real stressful time was 1990-91. So how did you handle that era as a company? Because you had mostly suburban office at that time, which was just shut down completely, basically from what I remember. Again, if you have strong partners, I can remember getting a call from son, Radner, saying, 
we have partners calling us, asking us for cash all over the place. When are you going to call? I said, I'm not. And he said, why? I said, because remember, we, when we set this up, we had this contingency fund. Well, I haven't used it yet, but if I have to, this is how I will. Mm -hmm. I forgot about that. Thank you. That's all I need to know. And he went back and told his boss, don't worry about it, Kenny. He's, got, he's, he's way ahead of us. And so then they started calling about, well, maybe you ought to take over some of these other projects. <laughs> again, I, was, I wasn't out to cream it. I wasn't out to max it. I was out to get what I thought was doable. But in the event something changed, this is how we So how did you hold off, hold off all these bankers that were calling you all the time saying, I got all this money, I want to lend, you know? I mean, Because that was the... the the fuel to the fire back then, particularly the SNLs, they were going nuts back in the late 80s. <laughs> I think this thing that saved me, I had a bank agree to finance a project, and I had made a deal, a lent, I made a, a transaction mm -hmm. based on the rent that that would cover. And I called up the representative of the bank to say, well, I just want you to know, I, I appreciate your backing, your, your, your taking this to committee to, because I just did this transaction based on that. And I just want you to know that's, that market is there. And he called back and said, I left him a message. He called back and said, I was in the board meeting when you called, so I couldn't take your call. They turned down your loan. I went, what? He said, they turned it down. It wasn't a good reason. I wasn't allowed to pipe for you. I apologize. A year later, his boss at that bank came to me and said, we want to invest with you. You've done really well. And I'm sorry, and I'm going to invest with you. I said, no way. No way. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I was I was so cautious after that happening that I was always doubting that I would get that approval. Even though I knew I should get it, I just said, don't be so sure and basically don't don't act on it until it's done. Mm -hmm. So that's what kept me sober, if you will, when other people were jumping in. Yeah, well that's yeah. And then, of course, you know, the, we had the early 2000s. We had some issues then. Of course, the internet, the, the dot-com bubble. And then, of course, 2008. Yeah. The only thing I can say is, remember I told you back in the submarines, I said, I'm not going to sweat failing. I can... If, if I planned it, if I thought it through, if I, not, if I wasn't greedy, I'll be okay. So people were jumping out of windows, and I just said, you know, it's not going to be that bad forever. Just relax and see what opportunities are there, you know? So that's, I would say, if, if that's I That's a great a mistake, attitude. But if I make a mistake, sometimes I'm looking for opportunities before I should be, i.e., it's... <laughs> Like they say, don't try to catch a falling knife. Well, I don't try to catch a falling knife. But one, 
you say, okay, wow, market's here. Some people say, yeah, but it's still not a buying opportunity. Wait till it's there. Mm -hmm. I'm more, well, at that point, you're going to be competing with too many. Maybe now's the time to start seeing if it's, you know, if it's a Well, you've been through enough cycles now that you yeah. have a better sense of what might be a good buying opportunity than others well, might. I can tell you right now, we talked about it earlier, this may be a time where I have never seen so much uncertainty at so many levels because we're talking about real crisis downtown and I don't know that anything's going to turn that around in the near future and and the crime thing worries me almost as much as the commercial bust commercial office bust because the amount of people getting shot is, is it's scary because at some point we I don't know if we can contain it all these kids with guns Shooting kids. Who wants to live in an environment like that? It's hard. It's hard. We'll get into a little bit of the district issues yeah. here in a, in a bit. Talk a little bit about your company culture. We talked about your partners. You know, the nine partners, and you know, I don't know if they all have different, you know, geography. If you do it that way, or if you have different projects. disciplines, it's or projects, pretty much. And, and, and sometimes it's a product. But it's, I mentioned it's kind of, some people think we run it like a family-owned business, you know, and we're all equals here, and, and people are here because they're respected for their ability and their work ethic and, and integrity. And I think the word integrity is important. There's a high sense of integrity here that people are trying to do the right thing for the right reasons. And that I mean, do the partners work together on deals, or do you have, you know, enough? Oh yeah, there's, there's, you know, working groups will be covering things. So we have, for instance, Russ Gestel is very much into the entitlement process, and Jimmy very much, Runke very much into the financial stuff. Teresa, the comptroller, is looking at the cash flow and the, you know, the obligations for. Cash calls. What about Bailey? Bailey is kind of strong. In fact, if I had to guess, Bailey will pick up my role of community involvement more than the rest. She she has a big picture, and she's this is Bailey Edelson you're talking about, yeah, from right. JPG. right, and she knows the region, and I think she's she's a natural for her. But we don't want to push too much on her. She's running with a lot of stuff, but but we have. 7,000 units, residential units, either we've done or in process or getting teed up. So we have a lot of long-term projects that so, keep us keep us happy. But if you were to ask Ryan, which I do, okay, we've got plenty on our plate, but are you seeing opportunities? And he said, that's my biggest concern is if we don't find a couple opportunities, in about four years, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be looking back and saying, why did I try harder? So that's, so we're, we're good for the time being, but talk about anxiety. Is, yeah. where, where, where will the future jobs be and what yeah. will they be? What are your, I mean, are you guys vertically integrated? I mean, I know you have the development team. Do you have a property management group? 
We, we, yes, we do. We, but it's not huge, and it's, we, in some cases, some of our equity partners have wanted to build up their property management side, and we've let them. So, we would phase out, because, again, Brian doesn't want to have, we don't want to fire people that have been with us a long time. On the other hand, if you want to sell that portfolio because that price is never going to be like that again, hopefully those people can go with the portfolio. So that's how he thinks a lot too. Sure. And just try to be fair to everybody, mm -hmm. but don't be to the point where you're building the team at the expense of taking, being able to take advantage of what the market can do. Mm -hmm. So you outsource most of your activities, yeah. construction, yes. property yes. management, yes. Yeah, all those things. Okay. And I think, again, who, who can predict? Look at the price per foot for an office building. It's now lower than the price per foot for a flex building. It's now the ground price for a data center is higher than the ground price for a trophy office building development type of thing. You know, it's way out of whack. So if you're not flexible and capable of riding out storms, and hopefully you haven't bet too much on one sector. Well, it's interesting. So being lean and mean, that's what my, I'm trying to say. My conversation with Art Fusillo of Lerner, you mentioned the word out of whack which I think is an interesting way of looking at things. He started there building regional malls, yeah. okay? Yeah. Lerner built five regional malls in this area. Two of those malls are vacant sites right now that have been vacant for 10 years or more. Hopefully one will be an FBI site, but. Yeah, and another one is probably vacating very quickly up in Dulles, it's struggling. Tyson's too is doing quite well, still, although they lost an anchor too. So, <laughs> so you know the mall business completely changed in the time that you know we've been talking, and obviously now the downtown office market is going through it. So the question, you know, it all evolves. You know, I mean, mine. And so when out of whack, when you say that. You know, it's just, it's just the dynamic of real estate in this marketplace, isn't it? You know, it, it, and, and you can look, Bethesda, we're sitting in arguably a place that has more energy than any other suburban or urban center that you can think of. Maybe there's a couple of them that I National think. Landing might right. take that on. Right, that's a good point. But the dynamics of the residential, and, and, and to give Montgomery County credit, this fit that master plan where they were trying to create a mix of uses, where they were trying to take advantage of the infrastructure, and it turned out great. Now, some of it is because well, you're, you're living close to where wealthy well, that's, people live and want to work. That's Bethesda. Yeah. But let's look at Silver Spring. <laughs> let's look at Rockville. Let's look at Gaithersburg. Right. Germantown may be coming into its own far more than you think, but that's not the level of sophistication this is. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, Silver Spring is holding its own, but yeah. it's not what it, what certainly what Doug Duncan had hoped it would be, right. you know, with bringing Brian Folger and 
you know, and Milt Peterson together to make it happen. Unfortunately, it just hasn't gelled like it, it could have. And, you know, I used to drive around a lot just to know what was evolving in various jurisdictions and various neighborhoods and stuff. It still surprises me to see the towers or high-rise multifamily. You know, I'm just, because that's, those prices aren't getting, those rents aren't going up. And and I, I asked, why, why do they do that to well, they had the financing, and they thought they could hold on to it for long enough to... Well, Oliver Carr just sold the Elm here, just yeah. the last Did couple weeks. Price? I didn't get the whole number. Less than 500 a unit, which surprised me. Because it's in the heart of everything. Of course. And it's a, it was a good building, but anyway. Mm-hmm. And Doug's building's not doing all that work. No, well, that's an office building, of course. But, but Oliver's office building leased up. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Marriott just did a build a suit here, downtown, the Marriott headquarters building. Which Marriott, is, I think to some degree Marriott stayed with that. I, I was on the Rockville economic development thing Assigned to make that Marriott thing happen, don't let them get away. And I got to give Marriott credit; they really did a hell of a job. They changed, they transformed the skyline of Bethesda, in my mind. Because you, you, you go up on Wisconsin Avenue and you look towards that. Whoa, that's that's a state. Well, I think I'll I'll give Oliver Carr credit too. I mean, his project Wilson and Elm is yeah. equally as yeah, Magnificent. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but but Marriott, the Marriott name is an anchor. Oh, no question. And, and they they did it right with I agree. They you know, you get a kick out of this. So Ike has me as a business advisory group that he's trying to get the public private thing and he has Lily Chi, who's now a delegate in charge of economic development. So I was working with them, and I wasn't really worried about them going to Virginia. I was really worried about them maybe going to the district because they were looking for where their people were coming from. And they they mm -hmm. wanted to be where they had access to the, to the... Where were they looking in the district to go, just out of curiosity? They had, they had near the district line, they had a couple of options. People like Friendship there. Heights area, yeah. So I went to the first hearing, and Lily is doing the presentation, and I could tell they weren't listening. You know, it was this is how great Montgomery County is. This is where we want. This is where. And I just said, Lily, if you don't mind, I'm going to interrupt you. I said, I'm a landlord. I'd like to treat this meeting as one of my meetings with. A prospective tenant. And although I'm not the landlord that you ever would have, nor have I ever had a tenant like you, the first thing I would do is, what are your issues that we need to address? And the whole Marriott team put down there and looked at me and said, thank you. We have a parking problem. And what do you mean a parking problem? We have a number of people who drive to where we are now, but we know 
that in the future we'll be hiring people who will take Metro to come. But what do we do for the first part when those people that we don't want to leave us are still going to have to drop? And they don't have, the, we have a thousand parking spaces at our campus through here. So we need, a, we need a flexible parking garage plan. Long story short, that's what made the team. We gave them spaces for the first five years or something like that. Well, yeah, that, that, that garage across the street yeah, there. Yeah. So we had right. We had them to go to the, the, there was a, what is it, a TIF or whatever it's called, for the, the, that were built, those things were built for certain people to have their mm -hmm. parking. So we had to expand some of that in the short term, give cars some of their parking with the idea that that would go down and car wouldn't be obligated for it, you know, and then the county would pick that up and just hope that the general public use would, would take care of it. Anyway, it was just, it was, it was interesting to see how important it was for the public sector to have that private mindset and I think that's what I tried to bring to the table. And, and I think, again, you know, when we were at the, at the signing, the official ribbon cutting signing, the Marriott people said, it all was based on that one conversation. We went back and told whoever it was. Arnie, Arnie Sorensen at the time? Or? I don't know if it was Arnie or anyway, but he, he hadn't died yet, you're right. But anyway, we said, the county's going to make this happen. So this is where they can, this is where the parking is. I'm guessing that Arnie made the final decision to come to Bethesda. Yeah. So, but it wouldn't have happened if, well, it might have happened, but it would have been a lot longer and drawn out. And this way it was, it was over. And, and I told his CAO, he's a really good man, I'm drawing a blank. Make it happen, do whatever. Because he, Mike was, Mike was pretty good when it came down to seizing, seeing people that he could trust. Back in, he was good. So the first time you and I spoke was 2004, roughly. I think the first time we met when at a ULI function of some sort. And Len Forkus at that time was the head of ULI Washington, and. We were all talking about regionalism at the time and figuring out ways to do this. And so we devised this program called Reality Check. And Reality Check became really an interesting mantra that ULI Washington had to bring all the jurisdictions together in the region under one roof for a day to have a conversation about where's the growth gonna occur in, the, in this area because we all knew that was coming. And you mentioned Stephen Fuller, who was our the, you know, the George Mason planning guru, who was kind of the, the growth and the prescient person who saw the regional growth and we were trying to manage the growth and how, where, where, where would we see this? So we had, we built these large maps of the region and we used Legos, and we had Legos with different colors on the map to, to talk about density and infrastructure and all these different segments, residential, commercial, and all that. And we sat there for a couple hours playing this game of 
the, and these were tables of about 16, as I recall, and I think there were about 15 tables of 16 people, which included a mix of business people, government officials, community leaders, advocates for growth and advocates for no growth. And it was a whole mix of land use people. It was one of the most fascinating experiments I'd ever seen in real estate for a day long event. And the University of Maryland brought in their professors to do a computerized modeling of this whole thing. And we had a report the same day from this, the results of, the, of, of taking all this, these detailed statistics and we got a report out of it, which was very interesting. So you and I were involved in the planning of this with, with Len's leadership, and it was an interesting experience. And I know that you have experience before that in regionalism, but you were one of the main people behind this whole thought process. So maybe you can explain further on how this all evolved and what happened from it. You did a good job of teaming it up, and I'll just take it from the participation at my table and the discussion and how it was a, not an aha moment, but a definitely poignant moment. So I was at a table that had a majority of people from Prince George's County. And people were trying to, as you said, where can growth happen? Why will growth happen? And what do we need to do to ensure it happens well? Is there infrastructure there? It was mostly about do we have the zoning and the infrastructure, and what are the trends? And as we talked more and more, as you said, we were putting blocks where we thought things would be. And the people at my table were pushing suburban Maryland, especially Prince George's County, mm -hmm. as more nodes, and I finally, one guy started putting a peg out there, and I put my hand on top of is. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm a developer. I would never develop there. And he said, why? I said, because the school system and the crime system has a reputation that guys like me don't even want to think about whether I could get permits, whether I could get, you know, the pricing. I don't see demand. And I said, the problem here is no one's talking about where will be communities there's, where there's demand and why. And I think we need to have that conversation. And for me, it starts with the school and it starts with the sense of pride in the community. And I'm sorry, but this node is where you want to change things, but you're not gonna change it through this process. Total silence. And finally one guy coughed and said, He's a planning commission, head of the planning commission. He said, unfortunately, you've said what all of us know, but didn't want to say. Mm -hmm. And then we got back to where we were making more meaningful decisions as to where the future could be. We need more and more of those kinds of conversations. Yes. Especially now. Yeah. And that was twenty, almost 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now. <laughs> but I will tell you, when we had those conversations, I think I would be remiss if I didn't say to my Montgomery County counterparts, we used to have a school system, we don't anymore. The crime in our schools, the scores in our schools, the 
image of our schools has changed in the last 10 years. Deteriorated quite a bit. And Right, and not for the good. And so our ability to pound the table and say, yeah, but Montgomery will always have this and we can always count on it. No, don't do that. Not there anymore. So talk about your the evolution after that. I mean, you formed the 2030 group. Talk about how that all evolved and, and how this regionalism idea developed back then and then maybe how it's devolved since then. And the pandemic certainly had a big part of that. But talk about kind of the growth and then the decline a little bit maybe of that. Well, I don't know if we talked about my participation, if we talked on tape about my participating on the Washington Airports Task Force. No, you haven't yet. Mm -hmm. When I started developing along the Dulles Quarter, it was obvious that I needed to understand the big picture more. So I joined in the mid-80s, I joined the Washington Air Force Task Force that was composed of Northern Virginia regional leaders that were trying to establish Dulles as a viable asset to their community because it had been the white elephant. It had had all this big promise of great capability, but no one was using it. It was too far out. It was There was nothing around it. it, it ground access to Dulles was via the Dulles Access Road, which didn't have any reason for you to be going out there unless you were just going to Dulles. And Dulles, frankly, didn't have the selection of flights because they didn't have the demand. So how do you... How do you make Dulles into the asset it could? The only thing that had was the Concord, when I would remember. Yeah, it, right. It had great vistas. You didn't have to worry about too many planes <laughs> coming down the river at once, you know? Right. So that got me into a group of gentlemen and women who were regional leaders, some transportation experts, but more regional leaders of what can we do for Northern Virginia? And Till Hazel was among them, Sid Dewberry, other leaders that were very much involved in knowledge of what made, how things would happen, knowledge of what was on the plans, and one thing led to another, and, and, and I'll just, I repeated this to you earlier, the board was so strong that I learned how things could really get done and who could get, make them happen. And the board was comprised of not only leaders of this region, but the leaders in, in, in Richmond that would come up to see how the state would benefit from Dulles being more viable. So there was a meeting one day after 9-11 and all the airports had been shut down. And we had a meeting on a Sunday at, at, a, at the Marriott out of Dulles, and the board came up, and one gentleman named Jim Wheat came up from Richmond, and he was blind, and he came in late to the meeting and chauffeured up, and, but people needed to hear from him because he was underwriting so many of the bonds for the state of Virginia, and he was concerned. Wheat first securities. Wheat first securities. Right. So the, as he came into the room, the discussion was, how can we get the airports reopened because it's killing us with the airports being shut down after 9-11 because the Secret Service was talking about permanently closing either Dulles or Reagan because there's too much traffic coming down the Potomac River that could be diverted air traffic to 
out in the White House. When Mr. Wheat heard that, he sat down next to me and he said, wow, I came at the right time. It's obvious to me, someone needs to talk to Daddy Rabbit. And everyone nodded their heads and I had no clue. I was the youngest in the room by many years. And I said, excuse me, Mr. Wheat, who is Daddy Rabbit? And he said, well, son, that's the man who lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He's the only one that can turn the Secret Service around and someone needs to call him. Well, needless to say, someone from that group did make that call and President Bush reversed the, the decision to close the airports and, and they opened immediately. So having been exposed to that level of big picture, level of regional, in this case, transportation, but regional priorities and with people who we're into the economic development opportunities to help grow the job growth. I was learning so much about economic development that I didn't realize not just where were good markets and why, but what made those markets viable in the long run. So that led to my getting more involved in public-private partnerships where they were looking to take on a specific task to make it either a community or a market more viable. And that led to eventually me being the first chair of a Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation in, in Montgomery County that was set up to try to create an, a stimulus for job growth in an area that had never thought they needed it. They thought people would just come to Montgomery because the school system was so good or the communities were so safe and well built. And they had neglected economic development. So I saw economic development, my knowledge of economic development as a catalyst for my ability to be able to speak to groups about where we are. You mentioned Steve Fuller used to come out with trends for our, our growth, our job growth, and what sectors, and what price range, and what this would mean for housing demand or office space demand. And to me, it's almost an economic necessity to have these conversations if you're going to have a community that is going to be competitive. And one of the problems we've had, and still do have, is we've been known as a federal city. We, the government has been the enabler for us to have the growth we've had up to now. But now the government is not part of that growth. That government is stymieing that growth by not coming back to work and not showing any inclination of what their role is in the greater Washington area, not just for ridership on the metro transit system, but generating the energy that's needed downtown. So it's a matter of economic development that we need to understand better and who can and who will understand those provisions to make the necessary, one, to address the necessary challenges and then make the appropriate and implement the appropriate actions to solve them. Getting back to the 2030 group, which I know you founded, what was the, was that the, was the impetus from Reality Check the, the, the origin of that or was it another impetus, do till, you think? Till sent Steve Fuller to my office saying, Talk to Buchanan. We need to have a regional group look at some of our transportation priorities because none of the jurisdictions are interacting with one another right. 
and they're creating roads that don't intersect, that don't that dead end rather than tie in. And Maryland and Virginia need to cross the Potomac Ocean in a more meaningful way. <laughs> and the district's got to be at the table because all of this has to be seen as a community that has flexibility, has mobility, and we're being proactive about it. And that led to Steve and me realizing that if we got together a group of regional business leaders from around the region mm -hmm. that we're talking about creating that sense and awareness of regionalism, that that would be a start. And we had our greatest moment when Amazon was looking to create HQ2, headquarters number two, and they went out to a number of jurisdictions or regions in the country, and we decided we're going to compete as a region versus Maryland versus Virginia, Fairfax versus Montgomery, Arlington. We're going to act as a region. And I give credit to Chuck Bean, who's Cog's executive director at the time. I was meeting with him, and he offered to fund, 2030 offered to help fund it, a regional marketing program that each of the jurisdictions could use, but it also showed that the sum was greater, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts because many of us did not live in the jurisdiction we worked in. And so we needed to address our commuting needs, which led to the Metro Now Coalition forming to be with using HQ2 as a catalyst, Metro Now was a group of business leaders led by Tony Williams, former mayor, to put pressure on the public officials to dedicate annual funding for Metro. The Metro, up to that point, had had to go hat in hand every year to ask for funding right. for what their needs were. They had no strategic plan. Everything was tactical. No overall strategic thinking. Metro now forced the public to realize they got to change that if they want to attract Amazon to come to this area because they created more ability to commute. And I think that plus the knowledge of relevant workforce development came out of regional thinking where we had a study that showed us that 95 acted as a dividing line between in our region. If you were east of 95, chances were you didn't have much workforce opportunities. You had to migrate to the west side of 95, whether you were Maryland or Virginia, to see those opportunities. So how can we create more workforce areas where they can be trained, retrained, as the case may be, without having to travel too far from home, and how do we build that that workforce up? And because up to then we had been so focused on the highly skilled workforce that we were proud of, that they were here because of the government and government jobs opportunities, that we weren't looking at the workforce that was less skilled but didn't want to move, and we're filling up many needed jobs, but we weren't training them as those jobs were being taken over by robotics or Mm -hmm. consolidation. So 2030 was very involved in looking at the political needs for just taking transportation, transportation to be 
a regional focus. And that led to a number of good decisions that would not have happened otherwise. And then you had to terminate it. Why? We were getting old. We had, the mission had been, we need to create a sense of regionalism. We yep. our mission, let the next gen come in. The, the, unfortunately, the, the region has gone from being very successful acting as a region to now we're back into our silos because of the pandemic. No one is collaborating like we used to. And I don't know what it's going to take for us to do what we all know needs to be addressed. We talked about housing affordability. We talked about crime and safety. And now that you have the D.C. need to reinvent itself, who can and how can that be? The way that everybody needs, knows we're being proactive. So I'm going to ask my next question, which basically addresses that. How do you see regional leaders addressing various challenges, including, one, decline of office occupancy and demand, including the federal government's slow return? Two, affordable housing. You mentioned that. Three, metros decline and other infrastructure improvements needed to keep the region thriving. Four, the increased social issues of crime and divisiveness. And finally, five, marshalling the influence of various forces to address these challenges. I only take, as I said, that's an exceptional list of challenges. I would only say, I use the word housing affordability yep. because when you just say affordable housing to most business leaders, that's that's for the un or underemployed. Understood. But housing affordability. Right. So now I'm paying Yeah. Um, the answer to your question is, unfortunately, with the exception of a couple of initiatives, and I'll just cite Tony Williams again at Federal City Council, really looking at Metro now, looking at with they're going to approaching a financial cliff. A crisis, and how are we addressing it? Because the ridership isn't going up to sustain it, and people don't want to just continue to fund it if there's no real change in its operations. I.e., seventy percent of metro costs are administrative and labor. When are we going to put everything on the table and say we can't continue with the compact that was created fifty years ago? With the way it's evolved, we can't expect the business community to endorse bailing out Metro unless Metro is willing to take a hard look at the at a, at a need for a strategic plan that's viable. So that discussion is happening behind closed doors. And unfortunately, I don't know if there's a political will to put everything on the table when it comes to that compact. because. People were still nervous in many parts of this region about the impact on labor. But as a business person, every if you're not putting everything on the table, you're not going to be in that business very long. When it comes to housing affordability, I am deeply distressed that nobody has put the appropriate pressure on the elected officials to actually change the way they do the, uh, the land use, the land use. use issues. I mean, it is it is almost a sin to think of 
not changing the four to seven year entitlement process with all the costs, with the cost of time, with the cost of endless studies, etc., that will never change the affordability issue unless people take a drastic uh, look at what must be done. And in some cases, it's blamed, well, we don't have the land. Well, even if you had the land, you know, that's not the issue. The issue is almost the entitlement process is, is, is a, a non-starter. A couple of other things you mentioned, what groups can and should step up? ULI, you mentioned earlier, has been very strong. I've been surprised that they haven't been more proactive about looking at how our region has changed well, the best practices. You talked about maturity earlier. I think we're in a transition generationally yes. right now yeah. in this region. Gen X is a small group on a relative basis. So there are two big blocks. There's us, the boomers, yeah. and then there's our children who are the millennials, at least my children are. And so the transition of getting the millennials motivated. And one of the things about millennials that are very interesting, and I've really noticed this because I counsel a lot of them. I have a group of 60 that I, they're very experience oriented. What do I mean by that? When they come someplace, they want something that's going to get their attention. And that really, they're really attention driven. I mean, this whole internet thing, this whole, you know, you have to keep their attention. How do you keep their attention? In real estate, if you're not thinking about the experience of being at a place, you're not alive. You're not going to live. You're not going to make it. I don't believe. What do you think about that, Bob? That's in the restaurant scene. It's pure experience now. I mean, it's you go there for the, the for the stimulation, not just the food. You're going there for the whole package. Place making. Place making. Right. Jody McLean, who runs Eden's, she her projects are very, you know, sensual. Yes. I don't know how else to put that, but you you feel something when you're there. Pike and Rose. You walk in through, you know, it's this feeling that you get. Right here on Bethesda Row, you know, there's vibrancy. So the question is, we have these pockets, but who can and will articulate why some pockets are not successful and why others are, and who will pay attention to it? And I, I unfortunately, don't see it from the public sector. And, I, and maybe there's not enough people in the public sector who have meaningful jobs. So they're just to serve their community, but they don't know, they don't, they're not coming from a base of knowledge. And and I know we're, we're in a town that's totally dominated by the gridlock on Capitol Hill. And so maybe there's this feeling that nothing's going to change anyway. I don't know. But that's my biggest angst is the lack of outreach, the lack of the next gen to step up. And like my mom used to tell me, there's no fool like an old fool. Here I am 80 and I'm still pounding the table. <laughs> and I don't think I'll stop until someone comes along and says, I, I got it. You know, I I'll do what needs to be done. And maybe it's 
Well, you see, you're on the federal city council, right? Yeah. So there are some new younger members. And do you one of them. Yeah, I mean, do you see do you see some leadership emerging there that might take? I, I see yes, but I, in a way, Tony's they're, they're turning it over to Tony to run with it. And Tony's no young guy he's either. No young guy, plus he's spread thin. Yeah, you know, and he's there's only so much he can take off, and and this metro now thing is a big challenge because. You know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to get the business community involved when they don't see how it's going to su- sustain itself. I mean, you don't have the ridership, period. Well, if the federal government is not going to the office, I mean, federal workers were probably a third at least of the users the of Metro was designed for the federal government. To getting the federal employee right. wherever that employee was going to go. Right. Right. So you have a system doesn't function. What was designed to function, that design needs to be revisited, and then you have a ridership that doesn't show any indication of coming back. And then you have a huge labor cost that gave themselves a ten percent raise or something crazy last year. Mm-hmm. So, in my experience, when you have cataclysmic change like this, things emerge that you don't expect. So but I'll just I'll be hypothetical and I'm gonna let, I'll let you react to this. You know, the land value is going to drop low enough in downtown Washington to the point where you're going to see demolition of buildings, you're going to see, you know, a renaissance in essence coming. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Detroit, Michigan went about as low as you could possibly go, where they were tearing down whole neighborhoods. Yep. And, right, right. So I, my hope is Washington doesn't drop that low. Some areas are still vibrant. Noma, you know, the ballpark, you know, those areas are still pretty vibrant. There's, and the wharf, that, that project. And there's still a lot of young people in the city that work. And mm-hmm. the question is, you know, when you look at downtown Washington, it's the law firms, the associations that are in the CBD, and then there are several government tenants on the perimeter of that. So I talked to my friend Steve Luskarden last earlier this week, actually, who used to be run Blake Real Estate, which is one of the largest landlords in downtown Washington. And he did say that some Class B tenants are renewing there, which I was surprised because he said no retail. Retail cannot survive. They said you can't find a sandwich shop anywhere to go in downtown Washington right now. And the law firms are also cutting away back. Oh yeah. They're they're not if they're renewing they're much less space right. you know than what they had. Right. So but I I can see a couple of things we talk about quantum computing emerging as a potential good thing if it if it chooses to make this their their center worldwide, and, and but, but that will be in the in the dullest quarter more than likely, right? Don't know. I mean, just the region will benefit from the, oh, that, certainly that would be a help. I think as we look at the need for the government to be modernized 
you know, I think we're going to see some improvements. We're already the center of the data center world. Of course. And that is going to continue to grow where and how. So I see certain things that are strengths. It just they, they don't necessarily come with all the bells and whistles that we need, i.e. data centers don't have a huge employment uh, no. factor. No one really understands what, what quantum computing could be, how it would be perceived, and, what, and where it could be located. Is it in the Dulles Quarter or is it downtown? Um, well, obviously the biggest trend right now is AI yes. and the LLMs and how much power those drive and in the cloud space that they need for that kind of activity is just spectacular. And you have, I think, if you could develop housing affordability, you have a huge demand because people have been migrating from this area to West Virginia, for lack of a better word, remote locations in our jurisdictions where it's cheaper to live. If they were to come back, that would be a, a very good sign. But it takes time. And right now, there's nothing immediate in the housing residential world that I see uh, as, as an indication of being able to control our own destiny. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take emergence of some things we may not even be able to see yet. That's what, and are the next generation to take the initiative, it seems to me, and right? I, and I've said in my pleas for collaboration with the younger generation, you guys have to live with some pretty tough decisions. You better be the ones making it. Don't ask me to make it based on the best I can do because I don't have to live with it. But if you have to live with that decision, you're going to make sure it's as good as it can be. And that's, unfortunately, we don't have that pressure being felt that they need to be proactive, they need to be making the decisions to will truly show this, enable this region to be perceived as competitive, desirable, a good place to live and work. Mm -hmm. Well, in this building sits the largest public real estate company in, in the Washington region. Yep. And they're led by a fellow by the name of Matt Kelly, who I interviewed for the podcast. And his, his episode is number one. And what he went through, you know, doing the transition of merging with Bornado and then Amazon HQ2 makes him pretty much, in my mind, one of the two or three business leaders in this region. So can Matt lead us out of this? And is he the right guy to be that person to, to lead us through? Because he's leading the largest economic development thrust in the, in the region and, right now. And it may well be because I'm in a number, I'm, I'm in a group that he, they try to schedule around his availability and he has some real schedule issues. And it may well be that his effort to try to put out the fires raging in his buildings downtown that he doesn't have the time to well not only that his company right, right now right right so he's 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 going through a lot and how long it takes him to stabilize how long it takes him to 
be feel comfortable enough to devote his energies to doing for the region what he did for his own company, we don't know. But he would be, he certainly has the credibility, he certainly has the ability, and it's just does he have the availability. Well, he's a good friend. I, <laughs> uh, you know, it's amazing what you just said with his time because I called him, you know, this is about six months ago. I said, how about we sit for coffee sometime? He immediately said, yes, I want it because of, he knows that I talk to a lot of people. And I assembled him, Gary Rappaport, Ray, Ray Ritchie, Diane Hoskins, and, uh, and, and Tom Bizzuto in a forum at the end of 2021, the end of 2020 and the end of 2021. I had them both, they all both come back to give the state of the market. And they each talked about it. It was fascinating. And those were, you know, other than you, maybe, those are five of the leading people in this region, as far as I'm concerned, as far as yeah. the different disciplines. They represent a lot of sectors. And they were just stumbling in 2020. 2021, things felt better, and, you know, we thought that we could see the light on the horizon, but it seems like we're stagnating. I think... I don't know, stagnating is a pretty strong word. I would say we're in limbo, but maybe you're right. We've been in limbo so long, we're now stagnating. So we're probably right. And I don't know what's going to change it. I really don't. I mean, here, it used to be, I always looked at the other day, is, okay, summer's over, we're back to school, let's, let's hit it. And my calendar would be reflective of that. Same old, same old. Nothing's changed that much. Now, there are more in-person meetings, but there's, I have just as many virtual meetings as I have now in-person meetings. And people are given the option. And more often than not, some are in-person. At the meeting, some will show up, and others will call in. So when I do these interviews, most people assume that I'm going to do it virtually. Mm -hmm. I said, no. No, my preference is to do it in person. And there's real reasons why, because I can see people's expressions, and their reaction to things, and I can lead the conversation in a way that I think makes sense when you're in person. One thing we haven't talked about, but I think is gonna happen. I've been close, again, Steve Fuller and I go way back. Prior to even 2030, I can remember not being able to get a, an equity partner to commit until they had seen a Steve Fuller report on the impact of the region on this project that they were considering. So Steve and I go way back. I called Steve and told him that since his retirement, there is no credible sense of where we really are. So it's hard to gather the troops for command performance for whatever unless they really understand the depth and it may not be as bad as I think or it may be worse. It's a very good point. So Steve has then reached out to the Dean of the Shar School of Public Policy and they're working on an effort to fund a 
kind of a process. One, getting people together to, that would be able to comment and appreciate the fact that a study will be done. And these people would hopefully be some of the leaders who would then be out promoting the need for change. And it starts with you need to know what needs, what the situation is and what can change and what can't, and what are we going to do about it. So this process may take six to nine months, but it's just at the beginning stage. So who's leading the Center for Regional Analysis now? Terry Flower. But Terry is more academic and has not been able to fill the shoes steep. And, and he now realizes that the, that gap exists, and he wants to be more viable. He's going to have a, a, an event in October to talk about the region, to talk about the things he sees, knowing that that's part of this rollout and I say, coming from Mason, one of the things I'm proudest of is my ability, my affiliation with Mason over the years, because they have gone from that community college on steroids to their enrollment now is over 40,000. They're the largest in the state. And they're doing good things. And coming, if, if, again, I've reached out to Steve and Mark Rizal, the dean of Charleston, to go to Greg Washington. If Greg Washington, president of George Mason, could reach out to his counterpart at the University of Maryland, who he's very close to, and their counterpart at GW, and got those three academic institutions to think regionally and call for action, then we're dealing from a, a level of credibility. Well, I, I no one feathering their own nest. People have any ability to do the analysis. The, the deans of all the universities should be involved in this. This is well, really if, important. If you get it too big, then everybody gets politicized and no, everybody has true. to have. So the, the hope is the core group representing the three jurisdictions will say, okay, we're behind this and this is where we're, what we're going to support. And that will lead those individuals associated with Maryland, GW, Mason. Just say, just starting around. Well, there's a legacy for you, Bob. If you can do that, get those people together and say, okay, here are the statistical basis of what we're talking about and get the decision makers, you know, the people that lead Marriott, Lockheed Martin, you know, the largest employers in the region, Giant Food, or, you know, whoever the largest employers are, because you have to get them in, on the, in the room to make the investments that we need in the private sector that pays for the, for, the, for the public sector. The tax base goes away unless we have the incentives to do it. I mean, you have to think big. You have to think <laughs> the big picture. You have to look at it from almost like a godlike perspective to see what it looks like, you know? That's why it's maybe this point to get the academic because another thing that people don't realize is one of our strengths has been as an attractive region a region to attract potential workforce that's been our university system yes and people come here and we want them to stay yeah we've got some great universities here great universities and and one of the highlights about mason is 
a higher percentage of their graduates stayed than anywhere else by a huge factor. And, and many of them are coming from the other side of the tracks, so to speak, mm -hmm. but have gotten so elevated through their Mason education that they are taking down good jobs. So academic, we shouldn't talk, just talk about the public and private sector. We've got an academic factor that needs to be involved. So that's the story. So did you have any academic leaders in the 2030 group at, at any time? Steve Fuller would come a lot and attend, and he would be my quote. Well, the president of Mason was always involved. So but no other university was involved? That's, that's shocking. You would think that Georgetown, Georgetown, GW, Mason, American. The thing that made Mason what it was, in my humble opinion, the reason I was affiliated with them as much as I did, was they knew that what made them different was the ability to bridge academia and the business community. The business community. Yeah. And they weren't afraid to do it. And and my. In my tribute to Till Hazel, I made the comment, and President Greg Washington came up to me and thanked me for saying it because he had never heard of me before. But I said, you might have thought you were a big developer in Northern Virginia. You might have thought you were a major player in Northern Virginia. But if you weren't affiliated with Mason in one way or another, or had been asked to be part of the Mason leadership, you really weren't what you're talking about. <laughs> it's interesting. Because Till recognized the need for local education to rot, and Northern Virginia didn't have a college per se. It was downtown. Community college. Northern, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was in downtown or it was in Maryland, but it wasn't in Fairfax. Yeah. And UVA now has satellites and all this and all that. Right, you didn't have Virginia Tech or UVA up here. Right, right. right. So Till said if we're going to be the region we think we are, Northern Virginia, we have to have a viable, university. a viable university. So that's how Mason got going. And then till determine who Mason needed that could, could help Mason be more viable. Yeah. So, and I'll never forget I'm being being asked. And I this person who's a a good man, one name, he came and said, it's been determined that we need you at Mason. And I said, why? What are my skills for Mason? They, they said, you know more about the community around Mason. Mason needs to know, know what you're thinking of why, and what's working and what's not working, and where they need maybe have satellite offices. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, what, what you're telling me, again, is that the center of the universe in Washington is moving west. Oh, has moved. And it is, you know, I mean, it's probably almost out to Dulles Airport now. It's, it's beyond Tyson's Corner going west. It's, so Reston might be the center of the universe for, for the Washington area right now, as far as economic development. Go drive the toll road, you'll see some pretty fancy buildings. I know. I interviewed Chris Clementi, and what he's doing at Reston Station is spectacular. And starting another phase. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, he assembled, he's assembled 13, 14 million square feet of density that he's only got maybe not even a third built yet. So it's, no. it's, it's quite something. It's, it, every time we go to Dulles, I'm awed by how much activity is going on there versus 
I can go on 270 and see nothing. Other than where we're sitting in Bethesda, that's right. the only other economic development engine in the entire region, frankly, yeah. right now. Yeah. I mean, Friendship Heights just got wiped out, basically. The only, um, the only thing is, with the HQ2 campus, going to the airport, I see some... Oh, well, there's some, tons yeah. of activity there. Right. 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 Of course. So that's, that would be the third. I don't know anywhere else that... There are there were a lot of cranes and residential in in the Noma area yeah. and in the ballpark, but things are you know that's slowing down quite a bit. It's interesting. What hopefully evolution will occur and we'll be able to withstand um, this this the other thing that crisis. You didn't mention, but a lot of our bigger developers have grown outside this area. Oh, yeah. In the last five, ten years. They've gone to the Carolinas. Gone to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Carolinas, wherever. But the, And their heart is there, not here. Their base may still be here because of their senior employees, but their growth and their future is not here. And I think you saw that in Japan to some degree. Well... MRP is doing things elsewhere, and uh, Acreage is going down there. I mean, there's several major developers that are making big investments. FCP, several people making investments outside the region. Well, I mean, economics tells you what, you know, what, what are you you're going to go look for where deals are going to happen, right? Yeah. You know? You're looking at why people, you're looking at factors, Coming with David, you're looking at areas where people said, we want to be competitive. We want to make things happen. Here, you don't see that. So we, we need to shake up the complacency somehow, right? Exactly. So how do we do that? That's the, the big false, challenge. A false sense of complacency, that's for sure. Especially in Montgomery County. I'll give you a perfect example. Montgomery County prides itself on their low unemployment rate. Well, the reason they have a low unemployment rate is because the base is so small. Because mm -hmm. people have left. But no one takes them to task for that. But they, and they're bragging about it. And I just say, I would never use that. I think I could get away with it. Mm -hmm. But Montgomery has gotten away with too much bullshit. I mean, the, the rent control discussion... I'll send that to you. It, it, it will make you sick. How yeah, can, how it's can, sad. How can they possibly be... How could, how could you want to come here and invest when you're seeing the dichotomy between the public sector and the private sector? In, in a, in it makes no sense. You're not going to risk it. They don't understand what pays their, bill, their, their salaries in the federal, you know, the tax base. That, to me, is going to be the biggest comeuppance because and it was brought up by the people who signed that letter to the mayor and council several months ago, six months ago, whatever it was. The real estate tax base is based on income. That's right. Ain't no income in these big vacant B and C buildings and A buildings that are showing vacancies. Where's your, where's your budget? How are you reflecting this into your budget? Mm-hmm. You would think that the governor of Maryland would come down here and say, "Guys, let's yeah. you know, let's get going here because we've is, got." 
Virginia has a budget surplus. Maryland has a budget surplus. From stimulus monies. That yeah, well, they don't think long term. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, let's make it the more pleasant topic and let's move to your priorities among family, work, and giving back, Bob. Well, we got a, two great grandkids, so that makes you think. You're the first family. one, first, my first guest to have great grandchildren. So, <laughs> well, as they say, if you marry young, your kids marry young, and their kids marry young, there you go. You have a chance. So, yeah, we were, and, and when you see the energy and you see the future and you think, oh, this is going to be so different from what we experienced, you know, I mean, because they're going to grow up with an iPhone or something in their ear telling them an AI. Well, Apple's coming out with a new headset right. that's virtual just unbelievable what it's going to be. It's an AR. Accentuated reality or whatever it's called or something like that. So they're going to they're going to have far more understanding of what can be, and they're going to be pushing that envelope at a much younger age, you know, type of thing. But they've got climate change. They've got carryover from whatever this pandemic. And social issues in and this country. Social issues are... So if you haven't interviewed her, you should. Her name is... Second... She's head of United Way in D.C. And she talks about, Alice lives here. Alice is an acronym for you're employed, you have a car, you have a house, but you're one surprise away from not making ends meet. And that, apparently, they did an analysis. And that, between the people at the poverty level and the people living in Alice, scenario, that's over 80% of our population that are really on the edge or under the edge. Yeah, if there's a medical emergency in the family or something so, happens. Yeah. So well, we are looking at, well, we're looking at the future. That situation is getting worse as you look at our healthcare system, right. the costs, as you're looking at, well, look at the inflation, the cost of today, the energy prices have gone up. Anyway, I, I'm very concerned, very concerned about the loss of what we knew as a middle class and how we all felt we had a chance. And if you were educated and you worked hard and you, you, know, you behaved yourself, you did have a chance. I don't know what those chances are. Well, the question is, you've got this technology thing that's taking us a directions that are exciting and enthusiastic. The question is, can you, you know, if we have, there's more idle time for people because there's just less to do, uh, but then the other side of the coin is, can the infrastructure, can, unless it's being paid attention to, you won't have idle time because you need to address it. Somebody's got to fix the infrastructure behind everything. So well, now you got people with the virtual working have a different mindset as to what the job is. Right. And what your obligations are. Right. Well, that's what immigration has taken care of for the last 20, yeah. 30 years. Yeah. And we have an immigration issue now, too. Yeah. 
because of some of the, the, the bad side of what's coming into the market from an immigration standpoint? Well, the numbers. Yes. You heard the mayor of New York. Yeah. Ten Overwhelmed. 10,000 a month. Yeah. Any yeah. And so that means cultural change. Right. So there's a lot of change. Yeah, it, it's an interesting I, world I, coming ahead. I think it can be and should be a great world, but I fear climate change is going to force decisions before people are ready to make them, and it should. I mean, this emissions control should be a higher priority than it is, and that's going to change job situations. So the short term is going to be well, I think, you know, our technology growth may be headed off by this yes. because then at some point the energy to do the technology we want is not going to be, you know, you're not going to be able to generate it quickly enough to be able to keep up with the te technology growth. So that's going to be an interesting question, too, uh, over time. Well, but, one thing I'd, I'd also mention, just by sure, virtue uh, of, of um, where you may want to put it in at the appropriate place, but... Did we talk about the fight for Fairfax and how that book came coming out kind of no. symbolized for me my the environment that I was able to develop what I did, and I was mentioned in the book, not my real estate career, but 2030. But the fight for Fairfax was the quintessential book about how rural Virginia became what it became. And talks about Till being the first among equals, but how they just determined you needed today, a group of business leaders, and they also had political ties with Richmond and places, and Dwight talks about we were Republicans and Democrats, but we knew we needed both if we were gonna have the political. Who was the political leader in Northern Virginia that you, was Jerry Connolly the guy, or who was it that oh, you think? Oh, a series of them, but but they all knew that this group weren't feathering their own nests. They were right. trying to build a, an environment mm -hmm. that would be representative of what they thought it could be. That's why they put money into Mason. That's why they they put they, they petitioned to get the infrastructure that, that was needed. I mean, they just. They, they work for development for development's sake, but the right kind of development, bringing in the right kind of companies to so to say, yes, this is a community that believes in itself and is willing to fight to make things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. And so, I mean, I would go, I would go to meet with some of these guys or whatever and be assigned tasks based on their knowledge of what I could do that they couldn't do. I mean, so it, they were selfless. They were just trying to build the best community they could. And you get in that environment, and, and I, and the only reason I bring up this book is because it described it as well as it did. And no other, I don't think you can understand this region without reading how yeah. How it came together. Well, let me go to a question that I ask. I have two final questions that I ask every guest. And this is particularly apt today. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? Well, 
if you were 25 today, what would you, what, what advice would you like to have here? I think, I think the advice that I've always lived with, and I would definitely emphasize it, get in the ring, don't be afraid to get in the ring. And once you're in the ring, get back in the ring once you get thrown out, because you're gonna get thrown out a couple of times. <laughs> but don't be afraid, and, but learn what made you get thrown out and don't make that mistake again. But if people know that you're not gonna be intimidated and you're committed, they will respect and give you the benefit of the doubt. But if every time you lose, go into a shell, then they're going to go, okay, so get, get in the ring in the first place, stay in the ring as best you can, and when you can't figure out why, and don't make that mistake again, get back in. Well, you, right out of college, were thrown into the ring, yeah. <laughs> and you were thrown into a ring that was a heavyweight battle right up front, which is quite something. I mean, you had an early experience that gave you a lot of... But I was with people who were in the ring, too. You know, yeah. They were also right. volunteering, dedicating. So I didn't feel I was by myself. And it gave me, encouraged me to say, okay, are we in a, I, I can remember being with people and just say, you know, no one's done this before. Who's up? And they went, well, if you're in, I'm in. Then I caught that spirit, I remember with Whitey Huber. We were going to do a project that hadn't been done before. And he said, well, you guys have talked enough about all the bad things. Is someone going to be in this thing or are we going to go home? And, and I looked at him and said, you want to make this happen, don't you? He said, damn right. I've been listening for two hours. Let's go. I said, let's go. But it, it was that attitude of, okay, we understand all the bad things, we understand whatever, mm -hmm. got it, now are we going to do it or not? Well, that's the mindset that we need right now. Yep. Not only in this region, but in this country. Right, right. And, and so when you're around that, that's what you seek in people you're doing business with, because that's, that's going to make a difference, that mindset. Now, that's yep. a good point. So if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway, for millions to see, what would it say, Bob? Well, I don't know that I like my answer. I said, if you're lucky enough to read this, enjoy the ride and keep going. Realize how lucky you are and enjoy the ride. I think my, I said this earlier, maybe I didn't, but if I had to do it over again, I wish I could have, I could bring more humor to the table. I'm, not, I'm pretty serious and I'm not as humorous as I I respect in others their ability to laugh at things. But I also think that I'm so driven that I don't step back and say, wow, you're so damn lucky to be in the position you're in. Relax. Don't take advantage of it. Just enjoy it. Mm -hmm. so my wife constantly, is that, that she brings that factor to me, which is the enjoyment. You're blessed. I'm blessed, right. Yeah. I'm blessed to have a wife who left Oklahoma to get exposed to New York City because, you know, she, she just knew she couldn't live her life that she thought she could in Oklahoma. So she was willing to go to the big city. And from there, she went to East Africa. You know what I'm going, what? What are you doing? She was working on a program that was recursive to Crossroads Africa. 
and a, a precursor to the Peace Corps, it was called Crossroads Africa. But here's someone, how do you even think about going to a place that is so remote? And she said, why not, you know? <laughs> and then you say, guess what, we're going to Japan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Bob, thanks very much. This has been a pretty wide-ranging conversation, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> I look forward to the podcast.